Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we are going to be talking about Afghanistan. Uh, as we record this and as you hear this, the withdrawal from Afghanistan is underway um, uh, with many surprises and controversies. Uh, so to discuss this topic with us, we have a returning guest, which is uh, Richard Hanania. Richard is the president, well, he's a fellow at Defense Priorities, uh, which uh, is about foreign policy, which is probably maybe the hat that he's going to be wearing here. I don't know. Uh, he's also the president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. Uh, and I don't know if that, uh, uh, Richard, does that cover for your po- foreign policy stuff too or not? No, I mean, I don't write for CSPI uh, with regards to foreign policy. Uh, so yeah, I have, uh, the presidency of CSPI, uh, research fellow defense priorities. I have a Substack and a, and a Twitter. So, you know, I'm in a, in a few different places. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You're pr- prolific on Twitter. Uh, and we are, um, next week we're going to be recording with, uh, one of your CSPI colleagues, Philippe Lemoyne on, uh, COVID related stuff, but uh-huh. it's good to have you back. Um, you know, I was thinking, uh, as I've, I've been watching the coverage of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and a lot of the commentary around it, and I was thinking, I have these dim memories of after 9-11, we, Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, was in Afghanistan, we said to the Taliban, turn bin Laden over to us or we will invade. They said no, so we invaded. But if you had told me or most people at the time that we'd still be there 20 years into the future, that would have seemed kind of uh, a little odd, right? A little odd. So how did we end up here? How did we, what were we doing in Afghanistan for nearly 20 years? Yeah. So there are these different eras and, you know, every single point in the sort of progression, uh, you basically get politicians making short term decisions or just sort of neglecting what's, you know, to look at Afghanistan in some cases. And then the thing just sort of uh, drags along. So you have these, you have the, uh, you have the invasion, right? Which is um, in response to 9-11. So I could Sort of take you through the the uh, the history of you know uh, a, a sort of a abridged form. So they they go into Afghanistan, um, and you know like what kind of government are you going to leave behind? Basically, they had the the Bonn the Bonn conference uh, in Europe, and then the basically they get some elders from Afghanistan, and the people who are paying attention to what kind of government you know there's going to be in Afghanistan, or what kind of what basically the mission the American mission is going to be. They're basically international organizations. They're State Department bureaucrats. There's no indication that the top levels of the Bush administration thought much about this. I mean, they were busy with uh, planning for Iraq, and then people sometimes blame Iraq, but you know they're planning for other stuff too. 
too. Just Afghanistan wasn't seen as that important. It didn't seem that threatening. You know, the Taliban was routed very quickly. So there was no sort of uh, uh, urgency to do anything. And the idea that the Taliban would pose, you know, a long-term threat to the United States was sort of laughable. I mean, the Taliban tried to negotiate. They tried to surrender. Uh, we, we, we weren't having it. Um, the U.S. basically thought that they would be pushovers and this would be very easy. And, you know, there was sort of this vengeance and this bloodlust and people were after 9-11 and people weren't really interested in the distinction between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, you know, had nothing to do with the attacks of 9-11. They, they were just sort of, uh, you know, they were just sort of aligned with Al-Qaeda and they were in one part of the country. Um, so there was just, and, you know, the, 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 there was a, a lot of stuff in the press. There were years leading up to this where uh, the Taliban had terrible press for uh, what they were doing on women's rights. And so we got a lot more of that after 9-11. So that added to the inability to really negotiate with them or sort of think through what's going on. So a lot of them, you know, some there's there were some of them who tried to surrender. They just got sent to Gitmo, right? Um, you know, the U.S. doesn't get the, the U.S. doesn't get Bin Laden, and they're just you know sort of you know standing around. There's a there's a template that you have for post conflict societies. You know, these are experts and they're PhDs. They work at government. They work at NGOs. They work for the UN, and they're basically trying. They're doing the thing that they do, which is put in uh, uh, try to build representative institutions, try to do development. You know, they have merit. They have many uh, uh, normal sort of um, you know the they have normal practices like women female quotas in parliament. You know, one of the best predictors of uh, uh, female quotas in in your parliament is how late your constitution was written, because you know in the last 30, 40 years, new new states are basically all getting written by the same sort of transnational uh, group of people who have who share the same values, and so that goes on for a while. And and it's you know the the war, be, you know Iraq. Everyone's focusing on Iraq. It's really a disaster. Uh, Iraq's you know starting in about uh, uh, to two thousand four to two thousand seven or so. Those are the worst years. Um, and so Obama comes into office. Obama runs against Iraq and he says, you know, Afghanistan is, is the good war. But when he gets into office, he's he's skeptical. I mean, he's he, the we start this is around the time we start having the same debates that we have now. And the idea is sort of what's the mission, right? Uh the, the, when Obama comes into office, you know, it just seems like this thing is going off the rails. The government's not really getting settled. Uh, the Taliban is making a comeback. And what the uh, generals do is they convince Obama to surge. And so the uh, number of troops reaches its peak um, uh, during Obama's first term, the number of American troops in Afghanistan. And, you know, they tell him this is counterinsurgency strategy. We're going to copy what we did in Iraq. This was the time of the Sunni awakening. You know, Iraq would later fall apart with the uh, with the rise of ISIS. But uh, Iraq was seen as, a you know, a short-term success. Uh, at least, you know, they turned around the, the absolute failure of around, you know, 2007, 2008. And so the... Um, and so Obama, you know, is skeptical. Biden is his vice president. Biden really doesn't want to do this. Biden really doesn't want to surge. And so this will this will come back to haunt the deep state later, obviously. Uh, and from from most accounts, like what Obama's written in his memoirs, what Ben Rhodes has written, what like Bob Woodward and other reporters have written, Obama really sort of didn't want to do this. Um, but you know, but there was this sort of the, the generals had a lot of prestige at the time. Uh, congressional Republicans, you know, were uh, were sort of hammering about about having to stick with Afghanistan and you know still and still fight the war. So he gives in, but he puts a uh, you know he puts a time limit on uh, the surge. It's going to be um, a few years later, and the uh, the time limit comes and goes, and they're basically still there. The Obama surge, everything gets worse. The Taliban gets more territories. American, uh, you know 
know, American casualties go up, uh, Afghan casualties go up. Um, and Obama sort of, you know, he, I think he fears what we're seeing now uh, later in his presidency. He fears that the whole thing is going to collapse. So he hands it off to the next president. Trump, exact same thing. He he, wa- he wants to get out. He was more expl- he was explicitly uh, about getting out of Afghanistan during the campaign, uh, while Obama, uh, you know, actually ran on Afghanistan being the good war. And the generals sort of play with him. They convince him. He, he, they convince you know they they drag their feet. They tell him he can't do this. He surrounds himself by with generals. You know, he rejects the American the uh, conservative foreign policy establishment. Many of them rejected him, and so he brings in uh, McMaster. He makes Mattis the um, uh, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, so, you know, he's got more generals and, uh, top positions than anyone else. And of course they, they, they exert a, you know, a large influence on Trump's foreign policy. He ends up surging too, not as much as Obama. Uh, they amp up the air war. Uh, so they're, you know, they're bombing every, they're bombing, uh, a lot more. The civilian casualties go up, you know, even more so than the, uh, uh, Obama era surge, because the, the idea is, you know, that we're not going to take large scale as many American casualties, but we're going to bomb, uh, we're going to bomb them sort of into submission. By this point, nobody's thinking about submission. Everyone's thinking, okay, we're going to negotiate at some point, but we're going to we're going to get the edge, and we're going to sort of get some uh, uh, we're going to get some leverage by helping the Afghan government achieve some stability. It gets worse. The maps you can look at the map, the Taliban over time, the Taliban just gains more and more territory, uh, and so so we um, and so near the end of Trump's term. Uh, he's been basically thwarted in his attempts to get out of Afghanistan and things gotten worse and he's souring more on the generals. Now he's got a ally and uh, secretary Pompeo and Pompeo wants to get out. And, uh, you know, so, uh, so he's got some, he's got some backup in the administration. They said, uh, they send Zalmay uh, Khalilzad over to, uh, F- to uh, uh, the Middle East to negotiate with the Taliban in, uh, in uh, Doha. And um, they reach an agreement. Basically, says that May first, uh, the U.S. is going to get out. the uh, The idea is that you know we're not going to have a we're, we we there's no even guarantee that the Taliban is going to accept the Afghan government. Uh, the basic idea is just basically the U.S. is going to get out. The Taliban is not going to attack the U.S. on the way out, and you know that that's going to be the end of it. It's basically what we have now, which is the U.S. abandoning um, the Afghan government, getting out, and the Taliban, you know, if not taking over, at least getting you know a, a fight uh, against um, you know getting to fight without much American interference or no American interference against the government. Uh, so Biden comes into office and then he, uh, he's, you know, he's still sort of smarting over losing the debate 10 years earlier. He thinks he's been proven right and he has been proven right. Um, and what he does is he doesn't, he says a delay. So May 1st, he blames the Trump administration. He says, logistically, you know, we need to get things together. We need to get out in a, uh, in a clean way. Um, you know, and I think he sets by, uh, you know, by September 11th, he says we'll get out, and we're that. That's the process that we're in now. Um, so Biden uh, pulls pulls out the troops. It's a real withdrawal. We're not we're not attacking the Taliban. We're not you know we're not really fighting them. And then you know even before it's done, when it when it basically becomes certain uh, that the U.S. is leaving and it's getting out, the U.S. doesn't even have to leave. The Taliban, which had controlled basically the entire countryside of most of the country, uh, but the provincial capitals were still in the hands of the uh, of the government. Every provincial capital just falls in a week, uh, and then Sunday the Taliban takes Kabul, and and you get those messy scenes at the airport, and basically that's where we are now. Yeah, so this is, I think, uh, most people. Uh, it's been apparent. I don't know. For, for, for me, it seemed uh, this has seemed clear for a long time, but most people would. I think it's not a surprise that after we withdrawed, or that you know, if we if the U.S. withdrew, that the Afghan government. 
uh, would end up collapsing and that the Taliban would take over. I think a lot that was seemed to have been the conventional wisdom that that would happen. The thing that was surprising is that it happened uh, so quickly, right? Uh, you know, basically before we even left, the whole thing collapsed. What do you think? Um, what does that tell us about? Uh, you know, the the nature of our engagement there over the last 20 years, if anything. Tells us that it's been a pretty huge failure. I mean, I don't know if it was actually conventional wisdom that the uh, Taliban would collapse. Uh, I like betting markets as sort of the uh, most credible source of, you know, what people are thinking. So Metaculus uh, about two weeks ago had it at a 55% chance that the Taliban uh, would take the presidential palace by 2026. I on Twitter, you know, said about 70, 80% chance by, by 2026. I thought, you know, I was much more up to, uh, pessimistic than uh, the betting markets were. Um, but everyone recognized it as a at least a possibility, uh, right? And so, you know, that that's that's where the that's where the discussion was. It wasn't always seen as inevitable. I mean, you don't know until the you know the rubber hits the road. Uh, like I said, but you know, about a you know a week or two ago, the the the, uh, the Taliban had control of no provincial capitals, right? So it had the countryside. You know, the the government had control over most part of the most of the population. Now, what control means in this context is not uh, you know is not clear. <laughs> Sometimes it could just be like an administrative building, and you know they'll say, well, they have they have control of the city. Uh, you know, the, I think we've learned that the government was sort of a uh, was sort of a phantom. Um, but it's been an amazingly wasteful and in, incompetent effort. I mean, the uh, uh, you know the spending in the end is going to total something like uh, uh, two two billion dollar two trillion dollars. Uh, the um, the direct uh, military assistance to the Afghanistan to the Afghan army was something like uh, eighty billion, and it was it was all like this. It was not just the. Um, you know, we, we the, if you go back to the Afghan uh, Afghanistan papers, and you uh, have my the my pin tweet that anyone anyone can look at. Everything is like this. It's like they pour tons of money into education. You know, they they they, they try to build schools. You know, the, the the contractors just basically steal the money. You know, they try to have this. Uh, uh, they try to set up a real government. I mean, the government is basically they're paying off a bunch of warlords uh, and then giving them titles like, okay, now this warlord is the vice president. Now this you know warlord is the you know uh, the minister of agriculture or whatever. Um, and on the ground, these warlords still have their own militias, and so the whole thing is a phantom. And the whole thing, the whole time, even especially during the Obama surge. Uh, they were convinced, the, uh, the administration was convinced by uh, uh, David Petraeus and the rest of the generals that you had to, you know, build up capacity, build up civil society, uh, give the Afghans a better life. And so just money keeps pouring in there. And, you know, the U.S. doesn't speak the language. It doesn't have any ability to audit this money. I mean, it's just going, you know, anywhere. There's some people in the Afghan papers said, you know, we spent the money, you know, faster than we, than, you know, we, we couldn't spend it at the pace that it was coming in. Um, and so this money goes a long way in Afghanistan which is one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, so the whole thing was just fake. The whole thing was a house of cards. We just did not have the capability or the capacity to do anything you know, we thought we could do. Uh, an interesting anecdote is um, was the Taliban was fighting for Mazira Sharif, which is a northern, uh, uh, a major city in the north. Uh, the Afghan government collapsed, and then the militias were still fighting the, uh, the Taliban. These were the same militias that were there in the 1980s against the Soviets, and then in the 1990s, uh, the, the warlords Dastum and the uh, Noor, they were, they, you know, they were, so they were the strongest force next to the Taliban in the north. You know, the Afghan government, well, the Afghan uh, military forces weren't even, you know, the, the second or third uh, strongest force in the country at that time. 
when, when they started to collapse. Uh, so it's not like it's, it was impossible to have a fighting force in Afghanistan. There were these indigenous fighting forces that had uh, decades of, um, you know, decades of experience from the Soviets to the uh, civil wars of the civil war of the 1990s uh, to this present day. Um, it's just, we did this very weird thing where we said, we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to call them vice president and, you know, minister of the interior, and we're going to negotiate with them and we're going to have regular elections and we're going to have women in the parliament and it's going to be done sort of, you know, we're going to infuse all this money and it's going to be done sort of on our terms. And that just completely failed. That just, they just didn't understand the country and they didn't really know what they were doing. So, so here's my question, I guess, for you is sort of in the spirit of where did we go wrong? Uh, you know, did we, I guess the first question and the second question are kind of related is, you know, were we justified in going in and trying to root out Al Qaeda in, in Afghanistan? And then was it prudent? Was it a good policy? Was it a good decision to actually go, go do that? And then sort of from there, like if we, if you think that we were justified in going in, where did at what step did we go wrong and what were our other options? So maybe there's like five questions there. Yeah. It's, it's, so we have to think back to the political, uh, you know, the political environment at the time. I don't think it was possible. You know, I think that any, it's probably, you know, like there, there's no reason you couldn't have negotiated with the Taliban um, and tried to get bin Laden, except politically, I think that would have been impossible. I think any president who did that would have been, you know, lynched a lot, lynched at the time. I mean, I think it was just, uh, uh, you know, just politically impossible. Imagine this thing happens and you don't even, you don't even have a war. All you have is like an extradition, right? And then you get bin Laden. I, I don't think that was feasible. I think, I think we were so... You know, we were so angry at the time and the Bush administration deserves some blame for really hyping it up that like, I think Afghanistan was almost too easy. And I think that's sort of the reason we went into Iraq. There was just this momentum of like, we were just enraged and they were just like looking around and there were people within the administration who, you know, pointed, pointed the, pointed the country in that direction. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think you could, you could have negotiated, you could have tried, I mean, uh, politically, uh, maybe not, um, but then if you understand that you're going to have to have a war, you did not have to, like, you didn't have to, first, you didn't have to overthrow the government. The Taliban is in, uh, they're in Kabul and Kandahar. The uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, the forces are in a different part of the country. They're in the Northeast. They're in the uh, Afghan-Pakistan border. You could have just had a very limited war where you just left the rest of the country alone. You didn't even have to overthrow the Taliban. They could have, you know, they could have just done their own thing. They probably, you could have probably worked something out where like they would protest and, you know, you would go in there and then you'd get your war, but they, you know, they'd get to stay in power. So you could have done that. You could have overthrown the Taliban too, and then just left. Uh, there was uh, some uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, elites in Afghanistan who, who thought about restoring the monarchy. Um, that that had been that had been over uh, that had been overthrown uh, before the um, Soviet uh, invasion, and you know we we weren't having that. We had that template of like you know good governments, democratic society, uh, you know every uh, representative institutions. So we didn't try that. So you know there, there's a couple different points here uh, where you could have made a different decision. I think it was just sort of autopilot the whole time. Okay, the politically easy thing to do, what the people are demanding, is a full scale war. We think the Taliban are bad guys anyway. They're also going to be very very easy. You know, we're the United States. We're this powerful. So it's like, you know, they're not going to give us uh, trouble. And then what we do in Afghanistan when we get there is just sort of autopilot. It's a sort of State Department, NGO, UN understanding of how you rebuild uh, broken societies. And that's what, and, and that's the path we went on. So there was, a, there was a few places very early on you could have gotten off this train. Some people say you could have do, uh, dedicated more resources. And like, if you didn't go into Iraq, you took your eye off the ball. I think that's a counterfactual. We don't know if we invested more resources, we could have done better in Afghanistan. 
extent, it could have been just as bad when Obama went and tried to surge and put in more troops and more money. Uh, things just got worse. And if we did that from the beginning, it might have just been worse I, 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 from the start. So I don't think it's that Iraq, uh, you know, uh, th that Iraq interfered with us winning in Afghanistan, which people, which the Democrats and people like Obama uh, argued. Uh, maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. We have no way of knowing. Uh, I think the more fundamental mistake was was our, our ambitions and what we were trying to do. I have a, a lot of maybe normal conservative to centrist friends who are uh, upset by the withdrawal. And, you know, they've raised a number of arguments about the bad consequences that are going to come from this. So I thought it might be useful to go through some of those and get your takes or responses to that. Um, the first one, of course, is the idea that if uh, if we leave Afghanistan, if the Taliban takes over, that this is going to increase the risk of another 9-11, uh, more terrorist attacks because uh, of, you know, uh, a safe haven for terrorism or an emboldening because uh, we left and the Taliban got back in. What is what is your take on that argument? It's hard to understand it. So there was an, an original uh, core of Al Qaeda uh, that um, there was an original core of Al Qaeda that planned and carried out the 9/11 attacks. But you know, it seems trite to say this, but Bin Laden uh, has been dead for a decade. Uh, we caught the you know what they call the mastermind of the 9/11 text, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed um, Al Zawahiri. And he wasn't that, in uh, Afghanistan either. <laughs> we found him yeah. someplace else. Yeah, yeah, right. And so, exactly. So, you know, you have to stay, I guess, involved. Uh, we don't have, we didn't get al-Zawahiri, the number, uh, bin Laden's number two, and then, you know, promoted after his death, but we don't seem to be very focused on that. Nobody's saying we stay there to get uh, al-Zawahiri. Uh, you know, the U.S. foreign policy has been such a disaster since that time that it's like, there's a lot of Afghanistans out there now. Now there's all kinds of ungoverned spaces throughout Africa uh, and the Middle East where terrorists could have a uh, safe haven. Now, what do you do about that? I mean, do you, do you occupy all these countries or do you just, you know, you just sort of live with it? You, you, you rely on intelligence, you rely on your defenses at home and you deal with it. There's no particular reason to think that Afghanistan is um, a much more dangerous than, uh, than say Syria. And by the way, in Syria, uh, we're on the, we're basically on the side of Al Qaeda or Al Qaeda adjacent groups against the Assad government. So if the whole thing is about terrorism, uh, you need to go back and you need to explain what American Syrian policy is uh, doing right now. Um, and, you know, the, and the Taliban, you know, people say, oh, you can't trust them. They have, they have self-interest. It's enlightened self-interest. That's all you, that's all you have to believe. Um, you know, they, they know basically if you make an agreement with them that basically, and this was the concern of the last two presidents, you don't become a base for terrorist attacks. Um, and otherwise you could basically do what, basically do what you want. And it's your country. Their self-interest is not to support, uh, terrorist attacks. So, you know, it's, they're probably, it's probably, um, you know, they probably have less incentive than anyone else because there's a direct people you can target these these uh, networks in you know uh, northern Syria and in Africa. Uh, you know, they're 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 sort of. Um you know, they're, they're, there's, there's, these are these are much more ungoverned bases. So you have this. You're going to have probably this hegemon in uh, in the Taliban. You're going to have an actual government that can control the territory, um, and that's somebody you can negotiate with, somebody you could talk to that has every interest not to attack you. The Taliban's never had an international uh, jihadist ideology. That's not them. That's but you know they had some uh, affinity for Al Qaeda, 
Um, but you know, they didn't have the same goals and they didn't have the, uh, they, they weren't uh, looking to undertake the same method. So, so this is something that people argue. Uh, I don't think it, I don't think it makes sense. I think it's just sort of a, you know, the idea that because it was 20 years ago, well, you know, there was a terrorist attack from, uh, from Afghanistan. We'll get another one today. The world has changed a lot. And, you know, I don't think there's any reason to think that. So another argument that I have heard is that this sends a bad signal to our allies about uh, and potential adversaries about our you know resolve and our willingness to stand by uh, people, whether it's Taiwan or South Korea or other places like that, uh, and that it will harm our relationships and willingness of other countries to uh, trust us. Well, what do you what do you make of that? To see, I mean, to see how silly this sort of is, you would imagine that there would be massive lobbying campaigns. Um, you know, and well, I, I shouldn't say that because they, you know, they want us, they want to see our resolve. I was going to say there should be massive lobbying campaigns, you know, by the South Korean government or whoever to try to get the U.S. to stay. Look, I, I don't, th- I think if you go and look at the reactions in those countries, I don't think there's a lot of evidence of people freaking out. Oh, um, because the U.S. Uh, pulled out of Afghanistan, you could also say, you know, we're we're demonstrating our incompetence and on our ability to sort of uh, meet challenges, and we're losing to the Taliban for you know 20 years now. We're ultimately losing. But you know we can just pull it out and keep losing, and that's you know that's what we've been doing for a really long time. Uh, so yeah, this is you know this is a this is a strange argument. It, it basically would justify going to war anywhere. It would justify staying anywhere because theoretically, some some bad person somewhere else might get the wrong idea about it. I mean, it's it's funny because the Viet in Vietnam, the U.S. sacrificed much more uh, in terms of lives lives lost at least than it did in Afghanistan, and it basically surrendered. It was a humiliating defeat. It, you know, the, the war tore the country apart in 1975. What happens a, uh, a month, a, a decade and a half later, the Soviet Union just collapses, right? The idea was domino theory. Uh, the the, um, the uh, Vietnam would follow communism everywhere else. But like, no, the facts on the ground stayed the same. Basically, communism was a failed system. Um, it, it failed everywhere. People could see that. And, you know, it didn't matter what happened in Vietnam. It mattered for the people there, but it didn't matter for American interest and it didn't matter um, internationally. Now what's going on in like, places like East Asia, you know, there's there's the rise of China. It's based on uh, geopolitical and it's based on economic realities. It's based on um, the fact that the U.S. cannot police the world, especially when there's a country that is now surpassing it economically and it's in its own region. So there are, you know, there are realities here. It's not based on you know, it's not based on Afghanistan. If you know, if anything, you you, you are staying longer in Afghanistan. You're wasting uh, money and resources. Um, you're you know you're you're hamper, hindering your ability to respond to other threats. Uh, but this is you know you have to ask you know what what would you know what would if you accept this argument what what else would it justify right it would justify it would justify forever war everywhere I mean all the time. Uh, for some, you know, theoretical, uh, you know, possibility of the, its psychological effect on someone else. And there is no evidence that the main thing Eastern Europeans or Taiwanese or Koreans are thinking about is what happened with the U.S. and Afghanistan. If anything, it looks puzzling and sort of irrational that we've stayed there for that long. Is there not some other way that this could have wound down in a more, uh, in a less humiliating way? Um, where, you know, if, if I'm, what I've seen and I, and you correct me if this is wrong, but that we've had, we, uh, up till now we had about 3000 troops and there hadn't been a combat death since February. I mean, isn't this sort of a limited peacekeeping role? Could we not have, have handled that a wind down, uh, in a more, I don't know, 
professional way to avoid the, the, the deep humiliation that we're facing now? So the lack of casualties was because of the deal agreed to with the Taliban, uh, which said that they wouldn't attack the U.S. anymore. And, that, you know, if you tell them that you're going to stay and you're, you're going to tear up that deal, uh, you're going to start taking casualties again. Um, the uh, the um, you know, can you do it? Can you do it in a cleaner way? Uh, so, you know, here's the here's the problem. It, the it, this requires a degree of competence on behalf of the U.S. government. And what we found the whole time is that we're just not good at anything in Afghanistan. There's a two mile road between the uh, U.S. embassy and the high and the um, and the uh, Af- uh, the Afghan airport, right, the Kabul airport. And the U.S. had to go helicopter between the embassy and the airport because they hadn't even controlled the most important road in the country. This is how it, this is how incompetent we are. Now, in recent days, uh, there's been reporting that. Uh, the strength is my my view that this couldn't have been done any better, or maybe it could have been done better. But I mean, this is this is not evidence of unique gross incompetence on behalf of the Biden administration. This is just a tough circumstance, and the conditions are bad, and this is what's going to happen uh, no matter what. Uh, it's reported that Ghani basically refused to, uh, uh, basically never believed that Biden was going to pull out. They, the Afghan government did not. Uh, adjust their uh, their strategy to deal with the fact that they were going to lose American support. Um, the uh, the um, the Afghan government actually told uh, you know because there was no there was no like we said there was no certainty or uh, there was a possibility that the Afghan government would survive. So they actually worked against the U.S. starting to evacuate people who would help. Uh, the U.S. They've, they've always been discouraging this because if everyone seems like they're fleeing, it looks like the government is falling apart. So it had to get to the point where the government was actually falling apart, uh, you know, for 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 you to begin the evacuations because the government, you know, didn't want uh, the government didn't want to, um, uh, you know, they didn't they didn't want to, um, you know, sort of set in this panic and facilitate its own collapse. I mean, I guess what you could have done is you could have like said the Taliban is going to take over and we're going to give up on the Afghan government. And that could have been very clean. Um, maybe that's politically, you know, you can imagine what the people who are demanding Biden have done a better job would have said about that when they, before the Afghan government even collapsed, we're going to say, we're going to push out the Afghan government and we're going to give the country to the Taliban. You know, that's, that's, that's impossible to imagine. So you had this government, which was a phantom that thought it was, you know, it, that thought it was a real entity and that was just going to sit there until it finally collapsed and that it was going to run away to, uh, to other countries. So no, the whole thing is, the whole thing is difficult. I mean, the, 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 the the Biden administration uh, delayed the withdrawal. They didn't stick to Trump's May 1st deadline uh, because they said the Trump administration logistically wasn't basically communicating with them. It didn't have a plan. They needed this time to sort of organize uh, everything on their way out. And I don't know what they've been doing or if they could have done more in those few months. I know that people, you know, the Trump supporters who say the Trump administration, you know, if they did this five months earlier, it would, would have been cleaner. I think, you know, I think there's no absolutely no reason to believe that. Uh, and sometimes you'll hear, you know, arguments that you can see just how no matter what they do, they're going to be criticized. So there's an argument that because there was a timetable, Biden gave the exact uh, moment they were going to leave. Um, this facilitated the Taliban uh, taking up arms and, you know, and uh, just overrunning the country. Now, there was a uh, Bagram, the main uh, air base in the country north of Kabul. What the U.S. did there was it left in the middle of the night, didn't even tell its Afghan allies. If you tell the Afghan allies, they're, they're infiltrated by the Taliban, by the way. So when you coordinate with them, there's a problem. Um, but they left in the middle of the night and there was all kinds of criticism. You could have, you could have tried that too. Um, 
you leave in the middle of the night, uh, you can't plan or take anyone with you. So like, you know, there's, there's that, there's that, but basically you set a timetable or you leave suddenly people are, are going to complain. You support the government or you don't support the government. Uh, people are going to complain. The government just needed to collapse to like, you know, clear the path and make clear what you had to do. Um, and you know, is, is it that disastrous? I mean, because as, as far as we know, no Americans have gotten hurt or killed. This is pretty remarkable considering the cha- uh, chaoticness of the situation. There was just a press conference right now uh, we're recording this on august 18th where millie and austin um uh the joint chief of staffs and the secretary of defense uh were saying that the taliban was cooperating anyone with proper documentation they're letting them get to the kabul airport they want they don't want the us to stay they want them to leave that's what they've been fighting for uh for 20 years and so yeah you, you're gonna see you know we, we, you know the taliban you know the us has been so incompetent for 20 years you know it's unrealistic for us to expect the the taliban to be super competent in, in doing this but they're making an effort to just get us out get us uh, out of there and even letting the Afghan translators and the people who worked with us uh, to leave. And so this is just another piece of evidence that, you know, they can understand enlightened self-interest um, if we just, you know, if we just, <laughs> we under we can understand enlightened self-interest ourselves. But yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a long way of saying um, it was going to be bad. It was going to be bad no matter what. And the fact that no Americans have gotten hurt is actually, you know, much better than I think uh, we probably would have had a, uh, we've had, would have had a, um, we could have hoped for because, it, you know, worst situation would have been like if nobody had control. So if it was the Taliban and the government and they were fighting and there was a civil war going on, the fact that the Taliban just swept through the country uh, created a, uh, a certain sense of order. It gave you somebody uh, to negotiate with, someone with an interest to facilitate uh, the American exit. And the fact that no Americans have been hurt so far afghans are hurt look afghans got hurt some of them you know there's these terrible stories of them grabbing onto the wheels of planes and falling off i mean a lot of people were going to want to get out of afghanistan no matter how you did this you you know like you said like i said earlier you sneak out um then they say well you're not bringing the uh other people who work with you you leave in sort of a more open way they're going to mob the airport and people are going to try to get out probably regardless of whether they have uh uh papers or permits uh or you know they they have um you know they actually help the u.s some people are just going to try to get out no matter what because it's better to be you know to go to the united states or go to a western country than go to afghanistan uh so summary you know i think i don't think we can be too harsh here i mean i think it's ugly but it was going to be ugly no matter what yeah, it's possible that I'm just overly pessimistic. Actually, that's quite likely. But so far, to me, what we are seeing is actually uh, not as bad as I expected because, uh, as you say, uh, no Americans have been hurt. We're not having to withdraw under fire. And even there hasn't even been like there hasn't been uh, like mass slaughter of Afghans, uh, you know, Taliban says that they're going to have an amnesty or whatever. That could change, obviously, right? They have perhaps an incentive to be uh, more well-behaved until we are completely gone. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, It's a, it's obviously a strange situation. The one, one thing that I, I, you do hear people sometimes make, and you, you sort of address this, but I have heard, you know, David French, I think, has made this argument. Some other people have made this argument, which is. Uh, basically, look, uh, if we leave, it's likely that uh, the Taliban will take over again, which would be bad. I mean, that's obviously that part of the argument was true. Um, and the the case is basically, you know, uh, the casualties, even before you had this kind of pseudo ceasefire truce, the casualties weren't that high. Uh, maybe maybe a couple people, a couple of casualties a month. Uh, the amount of money being spent 
was still a small part of the overall defense budget, like maybe $10, $20 billion a year. And you do, you are able for that to keep the Taliban out maybe, and girls can go to school and all of that stuff. So what do you say to that as like uh, an argument for why we should have kept uh, some sort of force there? Well, that status quo in which the U.S. wasn't losing that many troops um, and then, you know, it went down to zero after the agreement with the Taliban, that was during a period of time where the Afghan government was losing more and more territory. So eventually you were going to, you know, th- there was going to be a point uh, where you're going to have to either escalate or you're going to have to, um, you're just going to have to give up. I mean, the, the government really did not exist. That's that's the thing. So the U.S. retreats to bases. It takes a lower amount of casualties, and the Taliban just gets stronger and stronger. What, what, what is the what is sort of the end point? The end point is you basically you have a you, you know I think I think what a lot of people are hoping for is you get a point where you get a president who's going to uh, escalate again because this is the cycle. This is the cycle uh, we've been going through. Yeah, they tried to you know they tried to take they they did that thing where they took many casualties during the Obama administration, and it didn't work. And they tried the thing where they didn't take casualties. It wasn't working. I mean, yes, there was uh, cities where girls um, went to school, even a purely humanitarian issue. uh, As a purely humanitarian um, uh, concern, you look at uh, Afghanistan's GDP growth uh, in the last uh, 20 years since American occupation, it's been pretty abysmal uh, for for a country that started out uh, that poor. So unlike, you know, various metrics you can use to see how things were going in Afghanistan, they weren't getting better. And that's because it's a civil war and civil, it's hard to have, you know, improvement in living conditions or governance or anything during a civil war. And by propping up the weaker side, the more incompetent side, we were facilitating the civil war. In the end, it was the Taliban was the stronger force. They were, I mean, they were the better fighters. I think we should have accepted, you know, if anything, accepted that more, um, explicitly, uh, and just sort of just brushed aside the government. But, you know, they, they fell, you know, they did that on their own uh, as the U.S. was leaving. Um, and so, yeah, there was no, I mean, I think that the French uh, uh, argument rests on assumption that I think has been proven false, which is there was a real Afghan government that was there and able to do things and, you know, provide services and pe- make people's lives better. Now, look, there's a there's some people who are going to be unquestionably worse off in Afghanistan. So they fired the um, the Taliban fired the uh, the female anchors on uh, state TV. You know, there's a there's a percentage of. Uh, women's activists, women, professional women in urban areas who are probably going to see a decline in their living standards, um, unquestionably. Uh, you know, are those the bulk of the um, Afghan population? You know, the, the other day they said that the female literacy rate had gone from ten percent to thirty-seven percent during the U.S. occupation. I mean, I don't, know, I don't think that that's actually that good when you're starting from that low of a base. You know, if the Taliban had been in power, we don't know it would have been worse than that. They're not against teaching women to read per se. Um, so you know, we don't know if the Taliban. But what the Taliban gives you, at the very least, I mean, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that people basically prefer the Taliban uh, in the in the countryside because you go to the uh, because they're less corrupt and they'll you know if you want if you just have like a regular property dispute um or you have a you know a uh, you know a, a, crip, a criminal matter or you know whatever would be the equivalent of a crim, criminal matter over there a lot of people trust the afghan uh, the the taliban more than the government there's a story about from rolling stone they went on uh, they went on some highways in afghanistan and basically the, the roads controlled by the taliban would demand much less uh payment because there'd just be one checkpoint they charge you you know whatever few dollars it was or you could basically be in the government areas where like every two blocks the uh, uh the government 
government or a militia stops you and takes and shakes you down. I mean, not having a government is a terrible, terrible thing. Not having an effective government and even a bad government in a lot of ways uh, can be better for the population uh, than just having anarchy. And that's where we were. We were in anarchy. We were not in a place where there was a real state, a real functioning government. And you know, maybe and hopefully there'll be something better now. So let me ask you this: What do you what do you think the uh, the overarching mess um, lesson is? Uh, is this a matter that uh, if we had had a you know a clear a clear national interest, a clear mission, that we could have had a limited mission and maybe put, you know sort of in the uh, classic Cold War scenario, you know we we basically go find the next dictator and he may be a son of a bitch, but he's my son of a bitch. Should we go back to that or I mean I I, I take the, the the message of you know, all wars are bad and they're painful, but if we actually have to go into a war, what's the lesson uh, that we think we should be learning here? Yeah, I mean, the old system of just sort of installing a dictator, I mean, we don't know if that can work. We, we, you know, it's very politically hard just because, like I said, the NGO bureaucratic sort of UN uh, 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 sort of complex that's going to form the staffers and the kind of people who do nation building are going to be against that. The media is going to go uh, crazy. So it's just very, very, you know, just sort of where we are politically. It's just very, very hard to do that. Um, and I think, you know, the, the main problem was, and this, you know, you don't have to try to install the dictator. I mean, you do not need to fix the problems of Afghanistan. I mean, I think this is a, a fallacy, you know, when Bush is a second, uh, second term, you know, the f- f- freedom is under threat, you know, so it's not the exact quote, but if freedom is under threat anywhere in the world, you know, a threat, it threatens our freedom. You know, that, that's just nonsense. I mean, there've been civil wars, there've been mass killings, there've been deaths all over the world, and it has never threatened uh, American freedom. Often we are the agents of chaos. We are the ones uh, setting off civil wars and civil wars are terrible things that lead to mass killings. I mean, we set off a civil war in Iraq. We supported the opposition in Syria. We basically, we killed the government of Libya. None of these things have worked out uh well so i you know i think the lesson is just just sit on your hands and don't do anything i mean it's 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 better i you know i don't i don't think that we you know i don't you know this idea of a new neo-colonialism i don't know if it's possible in the modern world i know it's not politically feasible for us to do it uh so i don't think that's the path we we need to go to i think we just have to have be sort of less ambitious in what we're trying to do and not try to solve all the problems of the world uh so i have a related question uh in terms of the internal structure of the U.S. government, because one thing, you know, we are getting out uh, here finally because of, you know, uh, the obstinacy of uh, one man, basically, and Joe Biden. Um, But he did, you know, we do seem to have uh, what to me is a little bit of a troubling situation where, the, you know, the military was more or less able to outmaneuver or outwit uh, two successive presidents who, uh, you know, were skeptical of our continued presence in Afghanistan. And it's clear, you know, it was clear to me, it's clear to me anyway, that if it wasn't for, you know, just kind of like the insistence of Biden, uh, the military... Uh, I mean, frankly, I think uh, even now they would be perfectly happy and willing to like uh, call off the withdrawal, send more troops back in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so like, I mean, what, what does that say about 
the internal health of our democracy, of you know our civic institutions, control civic control of the military, and you know the, also you have kind of ties in with the NGO complex, other things like that in terms of rebuilding. Like what what sort of changes, if any, are possible that you think could be done to address some of that? It's extremely problematic. I mean, and the way that the military goes about sort of manipulating the uh, the political conditions and uh, resisting pre- uh, what presidents are trying to do is, pre- you know, is pretty blatantly, you know, troubling. The norm in national security reporting, if you just read an article in like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Washington Post, the norm is, you know, several anonymous sources say, and these anonymous sources are usually telling you some classified information that like legally you're not even supposed to be telling people, but it's, it, you know, classified. Uh, leaks are basically the entire um, are the entire uh, basis of national security reporting. You can see what kind of uh, incentives that creates for reporters. They're going to want to be getting on the national security reporters are going to want to be getting on the good side of the military, the CIA, the people to get the story. Sometimes we occasionally prosecute people like you know Assange and Snowden for leaking classified information. It's, it's completely you know political that they're giving they're they're uh, they're leaking the stuff the government doesn't want you to see. While the reporters for the New York Times and the Washington Post are giving you the stuff that the government wants you uh, to get out there. And so, uh, you know, particularly during uh, when Obama was deciding um, what to do about Afghanistan, I mean, they go, you know, you can look at uh, Ben Rhodes's uh, memoirs, for example, you know, he, he felt like he knew exactly where the leaks were coming from. It was the top generals, and they were always timed in a sort of way to give him, you know, maximum, to give the maximum embarrassment for the administration. Um, and so, yeah, there's all the kind of things. There's, you know, abuse of access to information. There's manipulating public opinion. At one point, the um, you know there's a there's a book uh, there's a book um, called the American War Machine that uh, shows that the Pentagon has more uh, spends more on PR then I think, uh, don't quote me on this exactly, but the entire budget of the State Department or something like that. Um, so the, the Pentagon has just like thousands of people just working full time on PR. And you know, they're behind the scenes, they're protecting their prerogatives. A lot of these people, uh, you know, uh, pretty much all top generals now go work for defense contractors after uh, they retire. It's a very rotten system. I mean, it's basically, um, it's basically the lesson. And I think what, you know, one good thing that's coming of this, I think it's important that these people get discredited. I mean, you see it on the, uh, you know, with the Trump movement. Unfortunately, a lot of uh, Trump supporters have been inconsistent. Now they've joined with the generals and the national security establishment to criticize Biden when they should be praising Biden for doing the thing that you know Trump Trump wanted to do in the first place. Um, but I think there needs to be a desk discrediting uh, of this class. Um, you know, and there's maybe other things you could do: lobbying. You know, maybe. Tr- to, uh, try to break that link between uh, uh, the military and then lobbying. Maybe some kind of a, you know some kind of legislation you know could do that. I would think you know whatever people are going to do, uh, you know I think you know you know if you're really going to go crazy with the suggestions, you know maybe just consistently enforce the laws against classified information. Either don't prosecute anybody who leaks classified information or prosecute uh, everybody. You, you should, why should you have this business model of national security reporting where they're just leaking classified information? If that information can be out there, uh, why does it need to be classified in the first place you know give us give us more transparency uh but yeah i think people i think people just you know understand uh you know the military the national security establishment it's not just them it's the contractors it's the national security reporters it's the think tanks it's the journalists they all have a role to play uh in this disaster so i think people need to understand sort of the systems here and they need to sort of look for uh look for changes at the sort of uh, systematic level all right well our guest today has been richard hanania you can find him on Twitter at, at Richard Hanania. 
Uh, he also has a Substack, richardhanania.substack.com. There's Keep sort it of simple. a pattern there. Yes, and you can also uh, check out his think tank uh, at cspicenter.org. Is that correct? That's correct. People, we have a we have a mailing list. People can subscribe. They can uh, keep up with what we're doing. We also have a podcast. So just look up the CSBI podcast wherever you get that if you want to uh, keep up with what we're doing. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.